0: Well, if we look down through redemptive history and we observe how God has been working out his wonderful and mysterious plan, generation after generation after generation, we can start to notice some patterns. Because God has particular fingerprints, if you will, on on how on the tools that he likes to use. There are certain ways that God likes to work. He has his go-tos. One of the things that he likes to do, one of the tools he likes to use, he likes to turn the tables. The Virgin Mary understood this, Mother of Our Lord. She celebrated it in her famous song in Luke chapter 1 that we call the Magnificat. You may remember, she, it's the visit from the angel Gabriel, she then goes and visits her relative Elizabeth, and when she arrives, they start rejoicing because Messiah is on his way. Even now, he's growing in Mary's womb as a tiny little embryo. And Mary praises God, and this is what she says. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked On the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. Listen to this. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Which he spoke to our fathers. To Abraham and to his seed forever. So we see that it is God's intention to save his people. By exalting the humble. And bringing down the proud. That is the pattern of his salvation. And this morning, as we step back into the book of Esther, we're going to get to watch God turn the tables in a really spectacular way. Now, why should this matter to you? Why should you listen today? You should listen because God still works according to that pattern. He is still in the business of exalting the humble and laying low the proud. And he is going to do one of those two things to you. He will either exalt you or he will humble you and bring you low. That means that this story we're about to tell is your story. It's my story. And the Lord wants us to heed it. So this time I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. If you're using a blue Bible from the seat in front of you, you can find it on page 413. Now, as you're turning, let me do a short recap. In the book of Esther, God's people, the Jews, are living under the rule of the Persian Empire. But they're currently under a sentence of death. Because their enemy, our villain, Haman the Agagite, he's like Persia's prime minister. And he has determined their death. He has even fixed a date for the total annihilation of the Jewish people that's going to take place in 11 months' time. And the clock is ticking. Now, our hero, Mordecai, he's a lower official in the king's court. He's a Jew. And Haman nurses a bitter hatred for Mordecai because as a Jew, he will not bow down to Haman, nor will he do him homage. Meanwhile... In the king's palace, Mordecai's cousin and his adoptive daughter, Esther, she's our heroine, and she's been raised up to be the queen of Persia. But neither her husband, the king, nor the villain yet know that she's a Jew. And Esther has decided that in light of this decree for the annihilation of the Jews, she's going to go to the king and plead for her people. She's just risked her life to go to the king without authorization. And as Schuyler preached two weeks ago, we saw how the king raised her up and showed her his favor. But she didn't immediately reveal her request. She's playing her cards very carefully. First, she invited the king and Haman to a private banquet that she had prepared. And where we're going to pick up our story this morning, they've just finished that banquet. And the king at the second, uh, the king again at the first banquet says, "Esther, what's your request? What's your desire? I'll give it to you." But she's still playing it cool. She says, "You know what? Let the king and Haman come to a second banquet tomorrow night, and then I'll tell the king what my request is." All right, that should get us up to speed. Let's begin reading in. Esther chapter 5 and verse 9. We're going to see the enemy's self-exaltation. The enemy's self-exaltation, but something spoiling it. So, verse 9. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them, the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther... Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited with her together with the king. Yet this is all worth nothing to me, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, fifty feet high, fifty cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon him. Then go joyfully to the, with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman leaves Esther's first banquet, and he is on cloud nine. I mean, he's pumped. He thinks he has it made in the shade. Everything is going fabulously for him. I mean, how many other people get to go to a private dinner party with the king and the queen? I'll tell you how many. Zero. That's how many. So he's headed home. He is walking through the palace. He's basking in his glory. He's got wealth. He's got honor. He's got power and status and high position and job satisfaction and probably self-actualization. He's probably got a good self-care regimen going on. He's got everything. And then he turns a corner into the king's gate and, oh, there's Mordecai. Haman suddenly realizes he doesn't have everything. He doesn't have everything. He doesn't have the fear and the respect and the esteem of this one guy. Mordecai neither rises, nor does he tremble before him. And Haman, the man with everything, except this one thing, is filled with rage against more. He restrains himself. He holds off doing anything right there and then. He goes home and has a little, little powwow. He goes home, calls together his wife and his friends. And then he begins to vent. He sounds off to this little fan club of his and he boasts all about his splendor and all the glory that is Haman. And yet it's all spoiled, he says. It feels worthless as long as I have to endure the sight of Mordecai the Jew snubbing me in the king's gate. See, he has so puffed himself up. He has so exalted himself in the pride of his heart. Do you notice that it's proud people who are the easiest to offend? Humble people, hard to offend, isn't it? Proud people, easy to offend. And he is vaunted himself. And the idea that there would be someone who would, who would dare to diminish his glory is hateful to him. So his little group of advisors, they suggest an idea. Wicked, wicked idea. Mordecai is clearly the problem here, right? Everyone can agree on that. Mordecai is the issue. So deal with the problem. Set up a gallows. Literally, that word is Tree which is going to come in handy later. So set up a tree. Set up a tree 75 feet high. 50 cubits high, 75 feet high. And in the morning, you can get the king's permission to hang your enemy up so high that all of Susa can see his body. And then everyone will know what happens to someone who crosses Haman the Agagite. Then once you've destroyed him and there's no more blemish, On your happiness, you can go off with a light heart to the queen's banquet. And Haman loves this idea. Haman thinks this is great. He heads out and he makes the necessary arrangements. But that night, as Haman supervises the construction of this 75-foot death pole outside his house, he has absolutely no idea that he's laying the groundwork for his own destruction. He's at the pinnacle of his power, full of his own self-importance. And he's totally unaware that he's about to be laid low. Because something's about to happen. Something so mundane, so trivial, so ordinary. Across town, the king's having difficulty falling asleep. Let's pick up our reading it. Verse 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, dun-dun-dun, on that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable, memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. We saw this back in chapter 2. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So it just so happens, it just so happens that tonight sleep flees from the king. So he tells his attendants, "Bring me some court records. Read them to me." Maybe he hopes that, like this tedious reading material, will help put him to sleep. Or maybe he's just given up on sleep and he's decided to catch up on some uh, on some business. Either way, when they read this to him, he hears something that jogs his memory. Huh? Because the accounts they're reading just so happen just coincidentally happened to contain the record of how Mordecai saved the king's life in an assassination plot. And the king realizes he's never given Mordecai any reward for saving his life, which is actually, according to Persian records, unusual. So he realizes he needs to rectify this situation. Read on, verse 4. And the king said, "...who is in the court?" Now Haman, so this is now early morning, early, early morning, just before the dawn probably. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men said, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done? to the man whom the king delights to honor. And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, Ah, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman, with his huge head, with his sense of self-importance, has no trouble in identifying who it must be that the king wishes to honor. Of course it must be himself. Who else could it be? So he devises a particularly extravagant honor. He doesn't want more riches. He doesn't want any promotion necessarily. He wants he wants royal glory. He devises this extravagant honor. This guy, O king, should be made to resemble you yourself. Let him share your royal glory. Give him your robes. Give him your horse, let a noble prince act as his herald, announcing that the person has your favor. Now I guess we can all we can all guess who you mean, right? Ah right? Alright, verse ten. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so. To Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Disaster. Disaster. Suddenly, in a moment, the tectonic plagues of Haman's world begin to shift. And all of a sudden, the ground under his feet feels like shifting sand. All his conceit, all his hubris, all his confidence that his plans will succeed, and his glory will be expanded, and that he's just going to move from strength to strength. Suddenly, it's all in doubt. He came before the king to request permission ...to squash Mordecai like a bug. He wants to blot him out... ...so that he can't tarnish his glory anymore. And now, horror... ...the king delights to honor Mordecai. And ashes in his mouth... ...he himself was the one... ...who came up with this extravagant honor... ...that's now going to be bestowed... ...upon his hated enemy. And, whoa... He himself must find the robes and the horse. He himself must dress Mordecai and parade him through the streets of Susa. The shame. The humiliation. But he must do it. He must do it. And he does do it. He's reduced to being a messenger boy. Declaring loudly to everyone how the man he hates enjoys the favor and the honor of the king he runs home head covered in shame he's disgraced he's disgraced and he knows it not only that this is a really bad omen right this this is a superstitious guy right he he spent he spent the last month casting lots trying to figure out when's the lucky day for the extermination of the Jews. This guy's a superstitious guy. This is a really bad omen. He has fallen before Mordecai. And we, looking back, looking with our broad eye lens, we know that the seed of the serpent, that's Haman, has fallen before the seed of the woman. That's Mordecai. In humiliation and shame. So he goes home now and he has to tell Zeresh and his advisors all about it. And they can't offer him any comfort at all. They see how his luck is turning out. He's gambled everything on this scheme of his to destroy the Jews on account of Mordecai. And now he's been humiliated before Mordecai. At the king's command. He has begun to fall. He has begun to fall. And they see that he will surely Fall. Now, with that horrible idea ringing in his ears, Haman receives a summons from the palace. It's time. It's party time. It's time to come to Queen Esther's banquet. It turns out that it's the footsteps of doom. Let's pick up the reading at chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people For my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe. And an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from his wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, The gallows, the tree that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. See how the mighty have fallen. 24 hours ago, 24 hours ago, Haman left a banquet in joy and gladness, second in position in the kingdom, on top of the world, it seemed. He leaves this banquet, a condemned criminal being led away to his execution. See, God has turned the tables. The serpent's seed, the enemy of God's people, has been humiliated, and shamed, and now the enemy is crushed and cursed. How has the Lord brought about this reversal? It's through the work of Queen Esther, the seed of the woman who has skillfully played her trump cards to bring about the enemy's downfall. So now this is the third time that the king has asked Esther, what is your wish and what is your request? And now, finally, when the moment is right, It all bursts out from her. It's her life which is her wish. It's her people that's her request. She lets the king know that she herself is in mortal danger. She, along with all her people, has been condemned to be killed, to be destroyed, to be annihilated. She quotes the words from the decree. And the king is shocked and the king is angry. His wife... His wife is under threat? Someone has dared raise a hand against his beloved queen? Who is he? Who is he? Where is he? And Esther easily unmasks the culprit. The foe and the enemy is sitting right there beside them. It's this wicked Haman. Well, the king is left reeling from all these revelations, and in his rage, he goes out to the garden to think. What has he learned? What have I learned? My wife is a Jew. That's news. That means my wife is under the sentence of death. I myself signed off on the plan that threatens to bring about her death. And my chief official is the viper in my bosom whose scheme has put her in danger. He's got a lot to think about. Meanwhile, Haman is utterly terrified. It's clear to him that he can expect no mercy from the king. His only hope is to appeal to Esther for mercy. So he begs for his life before the queen. This queen whose life is under threat because of him. And in his anguish... And in his bewilderment, he staggers over to Esther and actually falls on the couch she's reclining on. Bad luck for him. That's the moment the king comes back into the room. And it looks as if, it really looks like, Haman is attacking her. And that pushes the king right over the edge. He dares to assault the queen in my presence, in my own house. Well, that's that's it. Everybody knows what's coming next. And they they cover Haman's face. Because he's a dead man. He's a dead man. One of the attendants, anticipating the king's wishes, offers a suggestion. Well, your majesty, as it turns out, there just happens to be a gallows available. See, Haman was planning on using it to execute Mordecai. You know, the the man who saved your life? The man you delighted to honor? So, that's available, just in case you had any use for it. The king does have use for it. And Haman is hoisted up on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. The psalmist says, the wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. And it's true. And catch the significance. Haman is hanged on a tree. He's hanged on a tree. That's why it's important that we realize that word gallows is the word tree. He's hanged on a tree. To a Jewish audience, what does this communicate? It demonstrates that Haman is cursed by the Lord. See, the law of Moses says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The enemy of God's people has now been totally defeated. He has been shamed. He has been humiliated. He has been crushed. He has been cursed. The serpent's seed is laid low. Now our story isn't at an end yet. Because Haman's dead. But the Jews are still under the decree of death and they have other enemies. Mordecai and Esther, God's deliverers, they still have work to do. And next week, we'll see how the Lord will use them to bring about a complete and total victory. But already, already, we have this down payment. The chief enemy has gone down in humiliation and defeat before God's appointed deliverers. That gives us all the hope in the world that a total and final victory is possible. It's a fantastic story. It's a fantastic story. When we read through it at home group at the end, when we got to the end, I wanted to just go, yeah! But it's not written just to entertain us. It's written to help us on to salvation. How would God have us make use of this text for the good of our own souls? And I think we need to start by just understanding God's glorious intention. To turn the tables. It's his intention. It's his pattern. To turn the tables. This is the way Jesus puts it in Luke 18, 14. He says, everyone, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friends, God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. And why is that? It's because he is the creator. He's the one who made us. He's the one who rules us. He's the one who provides for us. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. In his hands are our life, breath, and all of our ways. He is infinite in his perfections. He's infinite in his holiness. He's infinite in his power and his glory. He's infinite in wisdom. He's infinite in goodness. He is omni-everything. You and I are omni-nothing. He knows. He knows what is good for us. And what is good for us is to live under his wise and powerful and righteous rule. That's how we were made. That's how we're intended to live. But our pride won't stand for that. Pride can't stand the thought of being under anyone else. And so what does pride do? It, it seeks to exalt itself. Satan was the first to try it. We believe that he fell because he wanted to exalt himself above the throne of God. He was no longer content to serve God as a glorious angel. No, he wants more. He must rebel. And when his rebellion failed and he was cast out of heaven, he came into the garden and tackled our first parents. And he told Adam and Eve that it was a rotten shame that God would withhold from them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. You could be like him, you know. You take this fruit and you will be. No more service. No more rules. No more obedience. Take your rightful place as your own gods. And that temptation and that pride overwhelmed our parents. We followed Satan in his rebellion. And ever since, we humans have come into this world thinking that we ought to be the center of the universe. And so we naturally exalt ourselves and we refuse to accept the limitations that God's placed us under. We're a proud people. We're a proud people. Can I demonstrate? You know, Haman, when... When he was told that there was someone the king wanted to honor, he automatically thought, Well, who would the king delight to honor more than me? Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's it's funny because we know where the story's going, but we know where he's coming from. What happens when you're in some group of people and the MC says, There's someone special I'd like to thank? What's our instinctive reaction? It's immediately to wonder, could it be me? It's like a reflex. We want it to be us, and we assume that it could be us. And then they go on to say, I want to thank so-and-so. And it's not you. And to be honest, you're a little bummed out. You're a little bummed out, aren't you? There's a little part of you that thinks, it ought to have been me. Not me. It ought to have been me. See, our sin inclines us to self exaltation. That one stung because it happened to me within the last month. Our sin inclines us to self exaltation. We exalt ourselves above those around us. That's our default setting as sinners. We want to exalt ourselves even above God. We want to throw off his rule and be our own God. We want to define our own reality. We don't want to let him define reality for us. And friends, God just is not going to stand for that. He just will not stand for that. He will bring all such arrogance to an end. He will humble all attempts at self-exaltation, just like he did with Haman. And so be warned. Those who stiffen their necks and refuse to humble themselves before God, He will bring to sudden and terrible and eternal judgment. So if you're in that condition this morning, then know He will not allow you to continue forever acting as your own God. On the last day, when He brings every single act to judgment, he will turn the tables on you. He will send you away into shame and everlasting contempt, as Daniel 12 puts it. Your pride will be humbled. And I want you to take warning also from the suddenness of Haman's fall. 24 hours. 24 hours is all that it took from Haman being second in the whole Persian empire to being a convicted criminal hanging from a tree. What a difference a day makes. What a difference a day may mean for you because guess what, friends? There's two great things that you do not know. You do not know the day of your own death. And you don't know the day that Jesus is going to return to wrap all things up in the Last Judgment. You have no idea about either of those two things. And so every day that you, in your pride, continue to rebel against God's authority, presuming that there's going to be another day, presuming that there's going to be a tomorrow in which you can repent presuming there's going to be another day in which you can believe in Jesus. You just don't know. Haman did not know. You'd asked him 24 hours ago if he was going to be hanging from a tree. He would have said, no way. And you may today be saying, no way. No way is God going to bring me into judgment quickly. I have time. Time to live my own life. Time to, time to go my own way, do my own thing. You just, you just don't know. But today there's good news available for proud people. Yes, it is God's purpose that your pride will be humbled. But you can actually embrace that purpose. He calls you to humble yourself. He calls you to recognize that you are not the be-all and end-all that you think you are. You can submit yourself once again to his rule. Because in an amazing series of table-turning, God has provided a way for us out of pride. He sent his son, his exalted son, his glorious son into the world. And God's son willingly chose to humble himself. And he laid aside his glory and he entered into humanity as the God-man, Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He did not seek his own glory, but he sought to glorify his Father. And Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And you you see this incredible thing. Jesus willingly chose to be put to open shame and humiliation. He willingly allowed himself to be hanged on a tree. He willingly allowed himself to be crushed and cursed as if he were the enemy, taking on the curse that we had earned because of our sin. See, we all, like Haman, exalt ourselves... But Jesus humbled himself. Jesus took on the curse for us. And then God turned the tables as he always loves to do. And he raised Jesus up out of the shame of death and took away all his disgrace. And he has right now exalted Jesus to the place of highest honor at his right hand. And one day, every creature, and you might get tired of me saying it. I will never tire of saying it. Every creature, and that includes you, it includes you. I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if you don't believe it. It is true. You, as well as all of us, and every living creature that has ever existed, will bow before God's King, who humbled himself, but whom Jesus, but whom God has exalted. And the great and proud enemy The devil, that ancient serpent, who has raged against the seed of the woman, who has raged against him from the beginning, who exalts himself and makes war against Jesus and his people, has gone down to humiliation and defeat. Satan is crushed, Satan is cursed, and he's living on borrowed time. With a final execution date that is set, he doesn't know it, we don't know it, but it is set in the will of the Father. One day we will watch as he is put to shame before every living thing, as Jesus casts his enemy and our enemy into the lake of fire forever, along with all who follow him by walking in unrepentant pride. Friends, I beg of you, do not be partakers in his fate. Do not continue to follow Satan down that dark road of self-exaltation which will lead to your everlasting shame. You do not have to go that way. If you will humble yourself before God now and bow before his Son now and acknowledge that you are not the great and powerful and wise one that you think you are, but rather you're a helpless, rebellious sinner. And if you ask him to be merciful to you. Be merciful to me. Remember what the uh, the, the tax collector said in the parable. God be merciful to me. The sinner. If you humble yourself. And ask him to be merciful to you. And plead with him to forgive you of your sin. And take Jesus' blood as the payment for your pride. Then it will be well with you. If you humble yourself he will raise you up. And then on the last day, when it is demonstrated before all creation that you lived before God in humble service to his Son, Jesus Christ, then God will exalt you. God will exalt you. See, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. That's always how God works. It's always how God works. This was his intention for Jesus. It is inten- it's his intention for all who follow him. So understanding God's purpose. Understanding God's purpose, let us humble ourselves. Let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, First Peter 5 says, that he might exalt us at the proper time. First, that means repenting of our sins and submitting ourselves to his righteousness through his son Jesus And then let us, every day, follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus by rejecting all forms of self-exaltation. That starts just by acknowledging that we still have a a temptation to pride. Like, it's just still there. Because we're not done with sin yet. Where can we see this? Do you find yourself angling for the praise of others? Do you feel that you're entitled to honor and respect and to be treated a certain way? Do you grow resentful when you feel that you've been passed over for some recognition? Do you find that you're often doing things always with a a little bit of an angle? Even when you're serving others, you're, you're doing it a little bit for the recognition. When someone else is honored, do you find yourself somehow feeling a little bit sour about it rather than rejoicing that your brother or your sister has been honored? Are you envious when you see other people doing well? Is that your is your instinct to be envious? Do you ever find yourself tearing others down? Casting shade so that you look better by comparison? Are you still tempted to try and rule yourself rather than be in submission to the authorities that he's put over you? That could include husbands and parents within the home. It could mean governmental authorities out in the world or within the church, the elders that God's placed over you. See, brothers and sisters, if you name the name of Christ, then let us put off all these forms of self-exaltation, even the little ones. So that we can be that those ones that can be hidden in the recesses of our heart. Let us drag them out into the light and put them to death. And then let's let's trust God's plan and His timing. Let's trust His timing. See, the devil has had his head crushed at the cross. He has gone down to defeat, and that gives us every hope that one day. All enemies will be put under his feet, and we will know triumph and peace and rest. But that time is later. It's it's not now. See, it's not actually wrong to want to be exalted. The problem is we go about it in the wrong way and in the wrong time. God's plan is to exalt you along with Christ on the last day. That day's coming. It's not here yet. Right now the the program is lowliness and humble service. So live not for your own glory, friends. Live for the glory of Jesus Christ. Do not regard your own honor. Have instead regard for Christ's honor. Do not worry about whether your name is great. Let your concern be that Jesus' name is great. Live your life in service to him and to his people. You know you will not be the loser. God will ensure that you will not be the loser. He will see to that. He purposes to exalt you at the proper time. Meanwhile, and here's the teaser for next week. Since our great enemy has been defeated, let's spend our lives acting like that's true and pursuing our king's victory until he comes again let's pray father in heaven i want to thank you i want to thank you for jesus victory over the devil at the cross and through his resurrection and how how our enemy has gone down to defeat we know that he's still active we know that he's still operating in this world and and that he's dangerous still and yet We know that that final and total victory is just around the corner. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be those who humble ourselves before that great day comes. Please humble us that we might be exalted when Jesus comes again. Let us not seek to exalt ourselves now. May we be a a humble church. Lord, may we be a church that's, that's consistently seeking to serve you and serve one another in humility.